this division that we all note, not just in our text this morning, but in our culture, um, is not all mean-hearted, and it's not all particularly negative or cynical. I'm convinced that for many people, it feels very genuine. It feels very real. Can you really count on religious knowledge? I mean, is religious knowledge the kind of thing like gravity or, you know, the second law of thermodynamics or something, you know? Is it, is it the kind of thing you can rely on with one's life and rely on your, your you know, is it the kind of thing that, that you can really place your confidence in? Can we really trust religious knowledge? And the truth of it is today that a growing number of people, and now I think easily most people, would doubt it. They're just not quite sure. I don't mean an utter rejection of it, but would just doubt it, like really sincerely doubt it. I'm not sure I can actually rely on religious truth, first and foremost, because which one? I mean, parts of Islam seem to make sense. Parts of Buddhism seem to make sense. Gosh, I certainly don't want to be the kind of person who would throw out, you know, Hinduism, you know, this beautiful ancient religion. And so what's kind of sneaking up on us is this sense that no decent person could really be a Christian because decent people are open to everything. And once you make a commitment, then that begins to feel exclusive and you're no longer a decent person. So a friend of mine a week or so ago uh, sent me a link to an article in the New York Times, the title of which was, A Church That Embraces All Religions and Rejects Us Versus Them. Now that second part sounds good, doesn't it? Don't we all want to be the kind of person who would reject an us versus them mentality? And the article describes this group of people who were yearning to find a religion that embraced all religions and that also embraced secular ethical teachings as well and really tried to bring it all together in this kind of do-it-yourself religion. And so their services draw from Baha'i and Shinto and Sikh and Hindu and Wiccan traditions and even from various humanist sources. And what the article went on to say, which I think is right, is that they exemplify a movement in in American religion towards dissolving divisions. And again, you can see how reasonable people would think, yeah, I kind of like that idea. Like, I'm kind of tired of religious divisions and what it does to families and neighborhoods and nations and even world wars. I I think I am kind of tired of that. And is there a way that we can find that we can dissolve divisions and reject a mindset. I, I love this sentence. They say they're trying to reject a mindset that judges others and finds them lesser beings. You know the whole thing that's been going on with the, Zimmer, the George Zimmerman trial, and especially from the black community, is this notion that we're still seen as lesser beings. And like when we hear that, it makes us all sick, right? Like we don't want anybody to be thought of as lesser beings. And so we hear that and we go, yeah, I I think that's true. So they go on to say that we want to be the kind of people that there is no them. 
And there's therefore no us who are superior to them. But here's the problem. Of course they do think they're superior. Why else would they be doing it? I'm not being sarcastic. This is the plain truth of the matter. They would not be doing this if they didn't think it was superior to the exclusivism of Islam, Buddhism, or Christianity, or Hinduism. Those are the four biggest world religions who all would claim for themselves an exclusive, that is to say true, most true view of the world, its origins, and where it's going when it's completed. All of those religions would claim that for themselves. And to say that we've mashed them all up so that we can eliminate an us versus them, it really just creates a different kind of us versus them. There's a famous uh, Polish poet who said, look, here's how it goes. The sacred just exists and it's stronger than all our rebellions. And things like this have happened for the whole 2,000 years of the church and Jesus continues to just stand in the middle of history saying, who do you think I am? Because we live in a world created by God and it's presided over by God and we're ultimately responsive to him. And so this, responsible to him I mean. So this business of knowing God and relating to him is a tradition that started long before we are born. Can you hear me here? Long before postmodern angst over truth, this existed. And people were relating to the one true creator God. Long before the, you know, angst in the enlightenment. You just keep going back in history. Long before that, people were relating to God. And this tradition is gonna continue long after we die. And this is why the proverb just has stood there for thousands of years saying, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And once you say that, everybody look at me, please. That word Lord there is not an amorphous, whatever you make it, want it to be. That is a specific, concrete being in history. The fear of Jehovah, the fear of Yahweh, the fear of the one true creator God, that is the beginning of wisdom. That's the only hope in us ever breaking down us's and them's. Are you feeling me here? It's actually exclusivity. It's loyalty to the one true God that brings the kind of oneness that Paul said, there's no slave or free or Greek or Scythian or barbarian or male or female here. This essential oneness is actually born out of a prior commitment, not to the gods, but genuine love that would actually break down us versus them, that is born out of a commitment to something that feels, you know, kind of counterintuitive to our culture today um, because we, we want this sort of pluralism. So if we look at our, our gospel reading this morning that, that uh, Dennis read to us, uh, Jesus says something that causes this division. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to the broadest, 
most beautiful, pluralistic thing one can find. Except for you have this awful personal pronoun. It is an awful, awful two letters. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. And if you come to me, that is to say, not the Roman pantheon of gods, and not even the other ways in which Yahweh is explained. But if you come to me, the one who is the embodiment of Yahweh, and drink of the water that I give you, you'll never thirst again. And the crowd went, whoa, that sounds like a messianic claim. And that's why the crowd started saying, hey, wait a minute, this, maybe this really is the prophet. That is to say, the one who would come like Moses. Others went farther and said, whoa, this maybe could even be the Messiah, the Christ. But some said, they had a little, bi- they had a little Bible argument. And some said, no, this can't be the Christ because he's born in the wrong place. And of course, they, were, they goofed that up. But you can see they're having a little Bible argument there. It's like, think of uh, Christian talk radio, right? As was, as was going on there in that little moment. They're having a little Bible argument. And of course, missing the point. And so what our text invites us to see this morning is that everyone thinks they know about Jesus. Can you just hold that in your mind for a minute? Everyone thinks they know about Jesus, even if they think he's nothing or just a little world historical figure or something. Everybody has ideas about Jesus. Everybody thinks they know about him and about the gospel. And this, of course, is part of what explains the really divisive yelling in our culture. And what I want to say to you this morning is that we are often at our worst as human beings and we are often at our worst in the church when we're arguing and defending and staking out our positions and dividing into one-sided, narrow-minded little groups. And it just doesn't work very well. And again, the proverb this morning is, is trying to help us see this when it says, do not rebuke mockers or they'll hate you. But if you correct those who care about life, that's different. They'll love you for it. Now, whenever we talk like this or you hear this, at least for me, it makes me think of those famous words from Jesus where he says, don't cast your pearls before swine. And I know, at least for me, I don't know how all of you were taught this, but I think I know, at least for most of you, what that meant was, you have something very valuable, pearls, Don't cast it before people who are unworthy of your pearls. And so the way our imaginations were shaped about this passage often had to do with their, I have something very worthy and there are people external to me who are not worthy of getting what I have because they're somehow bad or excluded people. I do not believe that's what this text means. Here's the problem in relationship to pearls and pigs. Pigs cannot be nourished by pearls. It's not good for them. It can't help them. It's actually bad for them. Therefore, actually unloving. Because if you think about the proverb here, don't try to put something onto somebody who's just like not ready to get it. And what often happens when we have that old mindset is that what's really happening is we're trying to control outcomes. 
We wanna make sure that when we tell our teenage kids, hey, you probably shouldn't really do drugs, we give them that pearl of wisdom, that that pearl itself will control outcomes. And of course, we can't be sure of controlling outcomes. And that often what's happening, what Jesus is pointing out, is that often this desire, uh, uh, this apparent external desire to help people is really all about controlling them or domineering them, not actually doing what's best for them in their current state. Did you hear that? That's what Jesus is getting at. Pearls before swine doesn't help them. It's not an act of agape in their present state. They need something different. And so what the text is inviting us to do is to find a way in the face of our loud and mean-spirited culture. This is how I begin to synthesize our gospel, our little gospel reading this morning. Now I'm beginning to try to synthesize it for you. That if this thing is happening in our culture, in the face of this loud and mean-spirited culture and its divisions over Jesus, What I want to help us think about this morning is what would it be like if we went back to like just being beginners again and our fundamental goal was simply to hold Jesus. I'm just gonna hold him for myself. And I'm gonna commit. Like I'm gonna look at all the divisions And I'm gonna take Islam serious, and I'm willing to take these ancient religions like Hinduism and Buddhism serious. I'm I'm willing to actually look at them. But for now, you know, like somebody learning to play piano, you know, isn't, you know, they're just, for now, I'm gonna go back to basics, and I'm just gonna learn here's the basic scale. And so what if, I'm wondering aloud this morning if in our culture that one of the most beautiful evangelistic things we could do would be to just learn to just merely hold Jesus in our heart and to answer the question, who do you say that I am? What do you actually think? Do you have confidence in religious knowledge? Or is it it a mere belief system that therefore is no more right or wrong than a Hindu, Buddhist, or Muslim belief system? Is this something we can rely on? Because as I told you a month or so ago, you cannot rely on your beliefs. Beliefs cannot be something that you can build action upon because you believe things that are wrong all day, every day. If I asked you right now, what's your blood pressure? You'd give me a number, believing it's right. It's probably not. If I asked you how much gas is in your gas tank out in the car right now, you'd tell me, oh, I think it's about 3.8. That would be your belief. It's probably not accurate. We believe things all day, every day that are inaccurate, and you cannot base a life on inaccuracies. Life is based on the knowledge that steps really work, and that plywood and two-by-fours can actually hold my weight. You see, that's the way life actually works. And when it comes to religion, it's no different. The physics of plywood 
and two by fours are not more real than the one who spoke those trees into existence from whom the plywood and two by fours were hewn. Jesus said, come to me and I will give you living water. Who do you say that I am? Jesus said, see the particularity. So I think there are lots of things that are important to the task of evangelism. I think love's really big. I'm, I mean, I'm kind of a Jesus freak, so when he said things like, you know, love your neighbor and they'll know the truth, I, I kind of hang on to those kind of things. I think truth is really important. I think it is important to accurately talk about Jesus. I think power is really important. All through the New Testament, when people saw deeds of power, they came to faith. I think that's important. I think serving is important. Like my friend Steve Shogren basically invented servant evangelism 25 or 30 years ago. I think all those things are important. But if just as your colleague and following Christ and the one who's tasked to teach week in and week out, if I could just say to you what I think is maybe the best thing we could do right now, and I don't know if this will last two years or 20 years or what, but you know what it feels to me really important that what if we could just hold Jesus ourselves? What if we could just be really Christians? What if people could see in our lives, whoa, there is a gentle, peaceful, loving, neighborly confidence in Christ. These are different kinds of people. My other neighbors aren't like this. Like what is going on with these people who hold Jesus? Because here's what it breaks my heart to tell you, but this is what I do in my academic work. So this is, I study evangelism in contemporary culture. So here's what I know and it's heartbreaking. The vast majority of people today, especially those under 30, reject Christianity precisely because of the Christians they've known. It's the number one reason. They're not rejecting Christianity out of ignorance. They're not rejecting it out of doctrinal imprecision. They're rejecting it precisely because they don't like the Christians they've known. So much so that the new atheists today, as they're called, think that religion's destroying the world. And that religion is presently the prime animating destructive force in all of human affairs. And this, of course, is most true for young people. And so the pluralism that we're all seeing and feeling is a way of dealing with that. People think that, well, if we can hang on to this pluralistic thing, then we can treat people right. And I, I wanna tell you, I get that. I mean, I get how that's intuitive for a growing millions of people. But come on. Who treated women any better than Jesus? Who treated outcasts any better than Jesus? Name me a Muslim, Hindu, or Buddhist leader who surpassed Jesus in love of outsiders and the breaking of hostilities and the joining of the two into one. It is the Lord Jesus Christ and the particularity around him that is the human hope to love everybody, not a contemporary form of pluralism in which nothing important can actually exist. That, my dear friends, is the truth. As far as I can figure it out, that is the truth. 
the people who stand in humanity's history as the greatest lovers and unifiers are people who had sworn their allegiance. They had answered the question, who do you think I am? And said, we think you are the second person of the Holy Trinity, the one true God, the creator, sustainer, and finisher of the whole cosmos. And we choose to take our life, our little queendom, our little kingdom, and we choose to entrust it to your gigantic, powerful kingdom. So I get it how, you know, being afraid of certainty and how that makes us sound, we're afraid that it leads us to being bigoted, dogmatic, high-handed, arrogant people, such that I said the kind of common idea today is no decent person can be a Christian. And so a lot of people say today, well, we just want to accept the teachings of Jesus because he seems to, philosophers and ethicists at least seem to say that he had some good ethical ideas. So maybe in this pluralism, we could embrace Jesus as the things that he taught. (laughs) But you don't have to be a theological genius to say that would include the things he taught about himself. I am the bread of life. I am living water that if you drink of it, you'll never thirst again. I am the light of the world. Try this one on. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus taught of himself, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. He said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You can't just pick and choose. If Jesus had the capacity to be an ethicist, then he had the capacity to ethically understand and communicate about himself. Now, I think you know I'm not saying any of this to be mean. I truly have a genuine empathetic heart for people who believe in the kind of pluralism they believe in today. I get it. I love them. I actually enjoy talking with them. I totally get it. I'm just telling you, underneath all that cultural conversation sits the question, who do you say that I am? And I'm saying to us this morning that it's interactive knowledge of Christ It's an interactual, interactive relationship with him by which we derive real knowledge that we can rely our life upon. That is Christian spirituality. That is Christian life. And this is what our first reading was all about this morning. That finding that kind of life in Christ on which, upon which one could base their actual life, that's why Paul says, I want to know Christ. See, Paul was after knowledge of Christ, and he said that this surpassed anything, and that he wanted to know Jesus is his Lord, and that in the pursuit of that knowledge, he lost all things. In fact, he considered them garbage, that he could gain knowledge of Christ. Of course he did. Of course he said, I don't need this, and I don't need that, and I can get rid of that. Of course. Of course, his Lord had said to him, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these other things, they'll be added to you. So of course, Paul's just following his master. He's just saying, yeah, of course I count all these things as rubbish that I could just find you. So last thought here, context drives appropriate behavior. And if this morning we're thinking about this, what's happening in our culture, 
then in our truth challenge, post-Christian world, I wanna suggest again, what if we just went back to basics? Probably you know that famous story where the famous football coach, Vince Lombardi, you know, is reported one day to his first meeting in the locker room at the beginning of a season, took a football and said to all these professional football players, you following me here? Professional football players, he said to them, this gentleman is a football. And it was his way of saying, we're going back to basics here during this training camp. I wonder if the Spirit isn't saying something to the church today like that. What if we just went back to basics and said, let's hold Jesus. Let's us hold Jesus. Let's us make a decision and treasure and trust and commit to steadily giving up left and right and posturing and positioning. And what if us, what if we just began to pay attention to Jesus himself, increasingly embodying his teachings, practicing the sacrament of the present moment, and then as we're holding him in that way, looking for divine appointments to those who are open. That's the best thing I can say to you about how I think present day Christians can engage with this honest, pluralistic culture. Amen.